Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. I hope you kept your place in the Gospel of John, and I'm going to ask you to look where we left off two weeks ago in studying the Gospel of John. We've been in the Gospel of John for a long time. And a man in our church, by the way, whose name is John, asked me two weeks ago, are we ever going to get out of the Gospel of John? And I said to him, live with it. No, I didn't say that with him. I just said, we're going to get there. We're planning to finish it sometime this year. <laughs> it's early in the year. But we're, I, we're taking our responsibility seriously in teaching not just part of the book, but the whole book. And it is a great book, isn't it? It's one of the most important of the books of God's Word. All His Word is important. Tonight we're going to be looking in the 18th chapter of John. And we're going to go beginning at verse 12 of chapter 18. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now let me pause here just a moment. The matter of someone's being bound and arrested or being bound and prepared for a difficulty in that person's life is found first in the book of Genesis 22.9. You may remember that God told Abraham, the great man of faith, to take his son, his only son Isaac, to an appointed mountain, Mount Moriah, and there he would sacrifice him to God. That took a great deal of faith, and faith is always accompanied and verified by obedience. And so what the Scripture says in Genesis 22.9 about that preparation, it says that Abraham bound Isaac. In Scripture, that is common. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 1827, the Bible talks about every sacrifice, every sacrificial lamb is first of all bound before it's taken the place of sacrifice. And we know earlier in the book of John, the Bible says that John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus and becoming aware that Jesus was not simply his cousin, but that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, he said, in front of his apostles, if you will. He had his own set of disciples. And this is what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is that being who has been designated to be the one who takes away our sin, and it cost him dearly. He was bound, not in effect to keep him from going to the cross. He'd already made his mind up to do that. Are you familiar with C.S. Lewis's child's book? It's really for people who have a childlike heart. Remember what Jesus says about this. Unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But do you remember Aslan? Aslan was this magnificent male lion. And when he roared, the entire kingdom sort of shook because of his authority and his power. But there comes a moment in the story about the Provinci children who had found their way into that land of Narnia. And it was a magical land. But it was also inhabited by the White Witch. Do you remember her? She is representative of the devil undoubtedly. And she was intent upon killing Aslan. And she had all her minions. Do you remember? And there was an agreement that the great Aslan made representing Jesus Christ is who he represents, that 
he, in exchange for the lives of some of the Provinci children who were being held captive by none other than the white witch, that he would go to the great table and he would offer himself in exchange for that child's or those children's lives. He came and passively mounted. He would not seem to be regal and powerful at that moment, but he climbed up onto that table and passively waited for the order to be given by the white witch to shave his mane off. And the mane is the pride and joy, if you know, of a male line, sets him apart as the king of the animal kingdom. And that happened. And then all her little minions came and participated in the killing of that great animal. But the rest of the story is, what? how did the story end? Beautifully, didn't it? It ended by his coming back to life. I'm talking about Aslan. Well, Jesus is represented in Aslan, and just as Aslan voluntarily mounted that table to be sacrificed for the sins of the Provinci children, so he, Jesus has done that for us. Let's go ahead and read a little further in verse 14. Now, Caiaphas was the one was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. We read that earlier from the 11th chapter, as Jesus read. And the point being, Caiaphas was prophesying, even though he didn't know God as he should, he was an antagonist of Jesus, but he was prophesying because he held a position of high priest at that time. And high priests occasionally were given a word of prophecy without their even knowing it. And verse 15 says, And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at a distance outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, you are also one of this man's disciples, aren't you? He said, I'm not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. We're going to look at Peter's relationship to Jesus at this point next week, God willing. But tonight we're going to just look at the trial of Jesus conducted by the leaders of the Jews. Verse 19, the high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Annas, therefore, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The plot to take the life of Jesus had been in the works for years, actually. We know Jesus' public ministry spanned some three and a half years. Probably about midway through that public ministry, there was the first hint of the people who were really the kingpins of Judaism, the leaders of Judaism, wanted to take his life, and they wanted it so badly. We see the first example in the Gospel of John. It's found in the seventh chapter of John. 
and it's during the Feast of the Tabernacles, but they were prevented, supernaturally prevented from doing that. Then in the 10th chapter, twice, if you look at chapter 10, if you want to turn over there quickly, verse 31, after Jesus has said, I and the Father are one, the Bible says in verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Notice the use of the word again. That suggests there had been previous times, at least one, when they picked up stones to stone the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after Jesus interacts with them a bit longer, they were unable to do that. Look at verse 39. This is speaking about the Jews. And whenever the book of John talks about a category, the Jews, he's not talking about every descendant of Abraham. He's talking about the group that really was the leadership group of the nation of Israel. We'll talk more about them in just a moment. But in verse 39, the scripture says, therefore, they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp. Jesus was a great escape artist when you look at him. Now, there was a group of people who were not part of this group known as the Jews early in Jesus' public ministry. In fact, the first Sabbath when he went public in his hometown synagogue, the synagogue of Nazareth, you will remember what happened. He was invited, as was the privilege of any male Jew in good standing in a synagogue, to come and read the reading of the day. And it was a selection from the prophet Isaiah. And he read it and he said, today this passage has been fulfilled in your very presence. They knew what he was talking about. He was claiming, I'm the fulfillment of this. And there was some wiseacre who said, isn't this Joseph's son? What was he saying? the people knew that Mary and Joseph were married officially after having been betrothed, married officially before they were actually married. Jesus was in the womb of Mary. That's why they were making that snide remark. But as they listened to him teach, they began to warm to him until he got to a certain point. He began to talk about a time that was very difficult in the history of Israel. And at that time, the people were suffering from a famine. And there was a widow in Zarephath of Sidon, that's a Gentile area. And he made note of the fact that the prophet Elijah, arguably the greatest prophet in the minds of those people who were there and every Jew, because he was, in fact, the greatest prophet from God's point of view. He did not go to the aid of some Jewish widow who was in, entrenched in that great famine, but he went to a Gentile. And to add insult to injury, they began to recall when they heard him use a Gentile as an example. He went on to say about the successor of Elijah, Elisha bringing healing to a man named Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian. He too was unkosher. He was not of the descent physically of Abraham. So they got huffy and puffy and they actually evidently the language would support this, took Jesus and the town of Nazareth sat, and if you were to go to Nazareth today, you would see it. It sits on a prominent place overlooking a sharp drop-off. They took Jesus there, ready to throw him off. And by the way, the reason they were doing it is because as far as they were concerned, he had broken the law and had blasphemed God in saying what he had said. And there were two ways for stoning people. Remember, the only way for capital punishment among the Jews was by stoning. But what we know is, when they got him to the edge there, the other way would be to throw somebody off 
on a stony ground below from a high perspective, which you know would happen. A person would die from the fall. But he just, the scripture says, he just walked out. The Lord allowed him just to turn and walk out. So there was a history that began to build on the first day of Jesus' public ministry about the Jewish people trying to kill Jesus because of the things he claimed about himself. Well, let's stop here just a moment. And I want to give you some food for thought. Why the Jewish establishment so opposed Christ. In John chapter 2, Gospel of John, Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. And at the Passover time, a lot of activity in Jerusalem. I learned in preparation for the message today that typically Jerusalem was occupied probably between 20 and 30,000 people during the regular year. But when Passover came, it was the most important of all the seven festivals that were held annually within Judaism. When that came, the population swelled to 180,000. There were 150,000 people who came in that week of Pentecost. So what you know is, that was a large gathering of people, to say the least. And when Jesus came in, he made a beeline for the temple. And when he got there, what he saw angered him. So much so that he made a whip. And he drove the money changers and the people who were selling animals out of the temple. Now, pay careful attention. The chief priest whoever he might have been, we know who he was, Caiaphas. But the one who really was in charge at this time was a former chief priest by the name of Annas. He shows up in our passage tonight too, doesn't he? And what had happened, Annas occupied the position from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. Then he was deposed by the counterpart of his a successor later on, and this man was known as Valerius Gratus. And for some reason, he got on the bad side of that representative of Rome, and the Roman representative had the power to put somebody in that position or to relieve. And if you know your Old Testament, and I know many of you do, in the book of Numbers, the Bible tells that Anyone who is a chief priest is a chief priest for life. So, in effect, in the people's eyes, I'm talking about the people of Israel who knew the law of Moses, in their eyes, he was still, Annas is still the chief priest. But there were others who succeeded him. He himself had five, I'm talking about Annas now, Annas had five of his sons and or grandsons who occupied that position. And Caiaphas, who held the position at this time, Caiaphas, his son-in-law. So they kept it in the family. And it was kind of like the godfather. You know the story of the godfather? And there's a, a Don, and the Don is the one who's in charge, right? There are a lot of lieutenants doing the work of the godfather. Well, Annas was like the godfather of Judaism. And he had all these minions, and they always knew that they had to go to him. I'm talking about Caiaphas and all the others. Really, they needed the approval of Annas to go forward with anything of significance as far as the people of Israel were concerned. And so Jesus was enemy number one from that day forward in Annas's eyes and Caiaphas's, for that matter, and here's why. Because the chief priest had monetary investment and his power permitted him to have monetary control of all the business that took place in the temple. There was a very lucrative business that went on 
in the sense that people, remember 150,000 people a year came annually. And it was not the same 150 every year. But when they got there, they had traveled, some of them had traveled not just from Galilee or down in the Negev, they had traveled some from Rome and maybe northern Africa across the way, Egypt from all over because there had been the great diaspora that had occurred earlier. And when they came there, it was inconvenient for them to bring a sacrificial animal for the Passover. So what happened was these people who were in the business, they brought animals and sold them, but they had to give a percentage of what they made to guess who? Annas, or whoever was in charge at that time, And of course, they would come from other parts of the land and you had to give the temple shekel to pay for things there. So they needed exchange to exchange their money. And somebody gets a cut of that in the U.S., don't they? When someone comes here with money that's Mexican, what do they have to do? They have to go down to some place in the Segundo Barrio probably, an establishment, and exchange. So he was getting rich, and all the chief priests were the richest. The chief priest family was the richest. Money drives a hard bargain, doesn't it? And you can see why Annas would have been upset. His upset would not have been primarily, I don't think, and this is just speculation, but I think I'm on solid ground, not only, if not primarily even, Theological. It was material, wasn't it? So that was one reason. And he also, I'm talking about Jesus now, at that moment, he was approached right after cleaning the temple up by a group. He said, how do you do this in the temple? And he said, today, in your presence, there is someone greater than the temple. Well, they looked around. It was easy for them to deduce he was not talking about somebody else. He's talking about himself. Remember that? And he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up again. And he said, they said, what are you talking about? It's taken Herod the Great 46 years to build this and he's still not finished the Herodians still aren't finished building it. Well, they thought they were talk- he was talking about the actual building. Well, what was he talking about? His own body. So here's one reason the Jewish establishment so opposed Jesus. He was bad for business. And he was identifying himself as being supernatural too. The Sabbath. Jesus got in trouble with the Jewish establishment about the Sabbath. He made a statement, still true today, the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, the historical background was that the rabbis of the day had really done a lot of injustice to the idea of the Sabbath, and they had drawn all kinds of further restrictions for the Sabbath. And what we need to understand is that the Lord was wanting to let the people know that the Sabbath is for us to find rest. And if we were to go to the book of Hebrews and look at 3, 11, and then we would look in the fourth chapter, what we discover is Jesus has come that we might live in perpetual rest. Are you aware of that? When Jesus called people to follow him, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. They were weary. Why were they weary and burdened down? Because their religious leaders had poured every kind of requirement upon them until they were just about to be broken spiritually of their ability to go forward. And it was just, religion is always like that, isn't it? It always has the capacity of 
ruining people's lives, souring them instead of setting them free. Now be careful here that you don't hear me wrongly. We are told by Jesus, if you abide in my word, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you will bear much fruit. So just because we are set free doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want to. I hear some songs that are more contemporary that really toot the horn of freedom, and I'm for it 100%. But if you listen carefully, some of those songs would indicate you can do whatever you want to. Well, in reality, if you know Jesus, you don't want to do anything except what He wants you to, right? It's not that we're perfect, but we want to be in sync with Him. And there is freedom in no other person or no other life than the life of following Jesus and abiding in His Word. So, on the Sabbath, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Luke 6, 6 and following, He healed a man whose hand was withered. He knew exactly what He was doing. He was healing this man on the Sabbath in the synagogue in the presence of people. He was making a point and He was coming out as God in doing it and what He had to say in that particular situation. Mark chapter 3, remember the paralytic who's friends brought him to Jesus because he could not get there on his own because of his bodily restrictions. Do you remember that? And he healed him. And before he healed him, though, he could read the minds. There were Pharisees. There were spies. Maybe some of them are really interested. Maybe this guy's right. But nevertheless, they were antagonists and they were listening. He could read their minds and he knew that they were saying, who does this guy think he is forgiving sin? Only God can forgive sin. So here again, the big beef that they had with the Lord was he claimed to be God. And he had a right to claim to be God because he was the God-man. We've run into several times in the book of John where Jesus declares himself to be, I am, for instance, the bread of life in chapter 6. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Again, in chapter 9, he says the same thing. And he talks about how he is the resurrection and the life. In chapter 11, in chapter 10, he says, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. He prefaces a description of himself by the simple statement, I am. Ego, I me. Our word ego comes directly from the word ego, transliterating it from the language of the New Testament into English. I am. And that began to boil in the blood of those who listened to it, and it reached an apex in the eighth chapter when he was confronted with a lot of the leaders of Judaism, and they were just letting him have it, and he they were making derogatory comments about his own heritage physically. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's a quite, a, quite a statement, isn't it? How long had Abraham lived before Jesus came on the scene? We don't know exactly how long, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 or more years he had lived. Before Abraham was, I am. They knew very well what he was saying. Because remember, when God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses asked, whom shall I tell sent me? Remember that? Whom shall I say sent me? And what did God say from the bush? Tell them that I am sent you. And so when they said, heard Jesus say, I am this or that or the other, they knew he was identifying himself as God. That burned them up. And if they had thought it through, they would have paused and listened a little more carefully instead of getting ready to do away with the Lord Jesus. Well, we've seen four things that really torqued these people. There are probably others. I hope you would do your own thinking on that. Cleansing of the temple saying, in effect, I'm going to be the temple. Violation of the Sabbath, 
the I am statements, the Gentiles being elevated to a level equal with those descended from Abraham. And the big issue, in, since we're in John, let's just go and look at two verses rather than my attempt to quote them. Go to John chapter 3. It's a great chapter, isn't it? You know John 3.16. And then in verses 19 and 20, and listen to what Jesus said. And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Here's the bottom line problem. People outside of Christ don't like to have the light shine on them because they're not ready and or willing to admit that they're sinners and they need to give control of their lives to the only one who can heal them of their sin. Now, let's take a look now in detail of what Jesus says. In the 18th chapter of John, he talks about this trial. And this is a trial of, really there were like six trials if you divide it up nicely. Three Jewish and three also Roman. We're going to look at one, the first one actually here in John. If you want to consider the others, I invite you to look in Matthew 26, the beginning of verse 57 through 68. We're not going to read those together. And also the third trial, when he came before the ruling body, we know as a Sanhedrin in Matthew 27, 1. The Jewish trial. We know that was the trial that is in this passage of Scripture. This needs to be examined in terms of its legitimacy, the way it was handled. And I want to preface what I'm about to say that the system of justice that God gave the Jews of Jesus' day is arguably the greatest system of justice to protect a person who is accused falsely. It's amazing when we think about that. And in this passage of Scripture, we want to look at the people who heard the case. It was the Sanhedrin. There were 71 members of this group. And there were 23 of these people who were from the priestly side. There were 23 who were from the side of the Mosaic law. The priestly side obviously would be priests. The law side, the law of Moses, would be the scribes. There were 23 who were elders. They recommended the boy poloi, the people. That's 69, if my math is correct. Then there were two others, men, who served as co-leaders. It would be like the senate of a nation or a, a ruling group of people. And they were men whose qualifications, let me just look at this, I don't want to waste your time getting on a rabbit trail here, but I want to give you exactly what qualifications a man who was appointed as one of these 71 judges had to demonstrate. The person had to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. That should ring a bell for some of you. And it has led some people to believe that Paul at one time sat on the Sanhedrin. Because in the book of Philippians, among the things he describes himself as being as a Hebrew of Hebrews, this meant simply a Hebrew of Hebrews was not only a person whose father was Jewish, and if a person had a father who was Jewish, married to a non-Jew, that person was still legitimately a Jew. But a Hebrew of Hebrews, both parents were Jews. So that was the leading qualification for being appointed 
to this august group. And secondly, they needed to be learned in the law with prior legal experience. They had to know every jot and tittle of the Mosaic law and all the associated laws that had grown up over the centuries related that. They were to be linguists. And what I mean by that is they needed to be fluent in certainly in Aramaic, which was the common language of the Jews of that day. And it was a language that was picked up by, remember, during the Babylonian era when the best people were sent away to Babylon in the language of Babylon. They stayed there 70 years and the language of Babylon was Aramaic. And Aramaic and Hebrew are sister languages like the Romance languages today. You can know Spanish and you can know Portuguese. They're both from the same root language, Latin, but they're different, are they? And you can know one and not know the other unless you spend some time learning the nuances of the other language. But they had that kind of kinship linguistically. But there would perhaps be people who were Romans who these people interacted with and they maybe just knew Greek and Latin because Greek was the universal language of that era in the Mediterranean world. Everyone who was educated could read Greek and speak Greek. But then Latin, of course, was the language of Rome. So, linguistically capable. Also of good reputation. And there's no elaboration in the description of this as to what that actually suggests. But nevertheless, they were to be of good reputation. Humble people. This is a very auspicious group. If these people lived up to it, and we know some of them didn't. A lot of them didn't. And But what we do know is that they were people who also could not sit in the Sanhedrin as one of the judges if that person had any personal interest in the outcome of a trial. For instance, if you're relative was standing trial, then you had to recuse yourself and not have a voice in the trial. And so these are the qualifications. Now, the rules for ruling were gotten from, no surprise, the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, as we call them. The Pentateuch is the name, but also from an associated set of writings, the Talmud. And I know you're really excited about this, so I want to give you some detail on the Talmud. There were two Talmuds. The Talmuds, to simplify it, were like commentaries on the Law of Moses. It's been estimated that if the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, where do you think that was put together? In Babylon, right? And then the Jewish Talmud, where was that put together? In Israel, correct. I know you're tracking with me now. And what we know, though, is that this was a huge amount of commentary. And a lot of the extra things that made Judaism so burdensome came from the fact that they were taught in the Talmud. It's been estimated that if the Babylonian Talmud were converted to books of considerable size, it would take 6,000 books to get it all together. But you had to be learned in that. And you needed to know the basic law, it's called the Mishnah, and the Gemara would be the commentary part. So you had to be sharp in those areas too. Now, I want to give you some qualifications for witnesses because Jesus had witnesses who spoke against him, right? The testimony of the witness is, if you had two witnesses, they had to be completely the same. Now, this, you see the safeguard built into that for a person who is accused almost 
charged him with the same criminal act. Number two, statements must agree in the main circumstances. So you couldn't be vague. You had to tell what you saw as a witness of the crime. The witness must say what he saw and as they, how the two of them, let's say there are two witnesses, how they saw they could tell the same time and they weren't giving their testimony while the other one was in the room. It was one at a time. And so you see how accurate the evidence had to be according to the writings of the Talmud that was very clear as to what was to be characteristic of those. Well, let's move on. And two or more witnesses were necessary to convict. This is right out of the book of Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17. And there were lots of questions that were asked. Here, just to give you an example of the insistence upon precision. Did the crime committed happen during a year of Jubilee? How often did a year of Jubilee occur, according to the Bible? Once every 50 years. Was it Jubilee year, or was it an ordinary year? Everything beside the Jubilee year was an ordinary year, with a possible exception, I couldn't find the answer to this question, to every seventh year was a year of Sabbath. So it could have been that too. What month was it? What day was it? What hour was it? What place was it? Can you identify the person or persons involved? That's rather precise, isn't it? And this would protect someone from being falsely accused and would exonerate the person if there were not two people who could give you the same information with these questions that were rather precise. And also, here's another thing. The accuser, there was not a district attorney in this position. There was not a public prosecutor. It was the one who gave witness who was the accuser. So the weight is heavy, isn't it? And here's what would happen. If it was discovered that the accuser slash witness was falsifying evidence, then that person would receive the very punishment that the person that he testified against was to receive. And remember, this has to do with capital offenses punishable by death. That would put the fear in you, wouldn't it? If you had information, you want to make sure it was right information because you're going to be the one who gets stoned instead of the one who is on trial. The method of the trial, it was between morning, daylight, and evening, and then there had to be a day in between. Now think about the trial of Jesus. When did the trial occur? At night. How quickly was Jesus found guilty? Daylight. A day did not expire. So they broke all the rules. I'm talking about this group of supposed men of good repute and humility. They broke all the rules because they were eager to get Jesus to Pilate so that Pilate would be persuaded by representatives of their group that Jesus was a traitor because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And that would be equal to what? Treason, of course, against Caesar, and punishable by capital offense in Roman law, which resulted in what? Crucifixion. And there's a reason for this. If we were to go to the third chapter of Galatians, and listen very carefully here. In the book of Galatians 3, the Bible says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. Here's the thinking, and they're very clever, these leaders. Annas and Caiaphas and all of them, very clever. And they knew if Jesus were stoned, people might say he is a great prophet, maybe the greatest prophet in the history of our people, and be 
instead of being looked down upon, he would be lifted up. And so they said, we've got to get him crucified because our people know that everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. And if I am not mistaken, a cross is made out of wood from a tree. That's why crucifixion was so important for Jesus from the viewpoint of the leaders. You see, the devil is very clever. But the devil always finds himself with the tables being turned on him by God. I can see Satan just so excited when Jesus is on the cross suffering and all that goes along with that and then relieved and joyous when he expires, when he dies. But little did the devil know. The devil is not all that smart, by the way. He is one who takes a while for him to learn. He is never going to learn. His destiny is going to be in the lake of fire. We know that. But Jesus was crucified on a tree for you and for me. That's incredible to think about, isn't it? Phenomenal. There's so much more I could say about this. Hopefully you've got a little sense of the criminal nature of the cross in itself, going back to the arrest and then to the trial. We just looked at one of six trials. And it is this part of the trial is so important because of the Jewish influence on it. And we're going to look at the Roman trial two weeks from now. And I hope you'll come back and listen to this. This is a little technical tonight, but it's important that we understand what our Lord Jesus endured for us by taking our punishment for us. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever been victim of the court of public opinion? I wish I had the liberty of telling the story of a man who was active in our church, who was drawn and quartered in the public life. And he was put in that position as a scapegoat. He was finally exonerated, but not before his reputation had been fully smeared and ruined by the press in El Paso. He survived that. And I have great joy in saying he has re-entered his career path. He told me when he was looking for work, initially he, he made hundreds of applications and nobody would even respond because all they have to do is look on the internet, Google his name, and all that stuff comes up. But it was wrong. Jesus was drawn and quartered and crucified by the public opinion that was disseminated by the leaders of his nation. But Christ did give a personal defense, didn't he, in this passage of Scripture, in a way. Look at chapter 18 again. He says in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Jesus was out front, wasn't he, from the get-go. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. In other words, bring some other witnesses in here. These people you enlisted, they can't even get their story straight because they don't know the truth. Finally, they found two guys who were there at the cleansing of the temple, the first of the two that we talked briefly about from John 2. He says, and when, and the Bible says, and when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, slapped him, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. 
but if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus is not, I mean, he said he wasn't going to take it lying down. He could have done a lot more. He could obliterate. Remember what he did just a few hours before this? When he was arrested and he said, whom do you seek? Remember? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what was his response? I am he. This is the way our translations, literally it's I am. And what happened to them? They were pinned to the ground. And they didn't fall forward. They fell backwards and they couldn't get up. Why? Because he was being himself. He was God at that moment. He was God all the time, but he was expressing his powers. But what we know here is Jesus didn't hold it against those people. Why do we know that? Not all of them, anyway. He didn't have a grudge against anybody. But listen, when he's on the cross, what is the first thing he says from the cross? Out of seven. What was the first thing he said? Forgive them, but they do not know what they do. This is the heart of our Lord. And His heart for all mankind is that they know Him. Because in knowing Him, He says in chapter 17 of John, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom You have seen. Would you bow your head? It's hard to me, for me to understand why people don't give their hearts to Jesus when they have information about who He is and how much He loves us and what He did in becoming one of us to deprive Himself of all the luxuries of heaven in order that He could literally suffer hell for us so that we wouldn't have to. So Lord, I pray for those who may be here tonight who don't know You that they would not delay to give their lives to you.